actually made a difference. The trainers, physios, managers, etc. Uh, this is a good friend of mine. I used to work with her. Uh, when it comes to God, she and I disagree. She wears her atheism pretty proudly on her sleeve. Uh, but she's not, she's not afraid to talk about things of faith. And so we've actually had some pretty good conversations uh, on Facebook, at least, uh, in the past. So what should I say to something like that? Uh, well, before I could figure out anything to say, some of her other friends started to reply to her post. And so the next little bit comes with a slight language warning. Um, uh, the first reply was, yes, F all to do with God and everything to do with his parents, genes, his trainers and his own ability. Uh, to which my friend replied, if I was on the periphery, I'd be insulted by this thinking, oh, I didn't blank that. Oh, I didn't blank that either. I blanked them in my notes. I'm very sorry. That's no good. Just block your eyes. If I was on the periphery, I'd be insulted by this thanking God stuff. So disrespectful, unappreciative, and just plain rude. I think even the periphery are religious nutters. Luckily, God was wearing his springbok jumper tonight. And finally, I don't care who he thanks. God, Allah, the spaghetti monster, he scored the try. That's all that matters. So what should I say? Uh, on one hand, I do cringe a little when Christian celebrities publicly thank God for helping them win a victory. But on the other hand, I do believe that God deserves our thanks and praise for everything. And I don't believe Cheslin Colby should be hiding his thanks away. Well, it was a Saturday night and I was tired and I had a sermon still to write, so I didn't reply at all. But it did make me sad because my friend thinks that the God that I know, the God who made me and who loves me, who provides for me and sustains me, who forgives me and changes me, the God who lives with me is too embarrassing or too offensive to bring out in public. She would prefer that I treat him like a skeleton in my closet, a private lifestyle choice that should remain exactly that. You get the sense that to thank him publicly is a little too radical. It's in this context that we begin this new sermon series on gracious witness. As we turn to focus on this passage that we've just read from Matthew's Gospel, we hear Jesus call not to hide our faith away, but to bring him out in public. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, and it does sound radical. I wonder what my friend would say. Keep your religion to yourself. Put your Jesus away. And so in an environment like this, it's easy for us to worry that speaking about Jesus in public will seem too extreme. Perhaps we not only cringe when we hear Christian celebrities thank God for their victories, perhaps we also cringe at the thought of obeying Jesus' command to make disciples. There's an excellent book written by John Dixon called The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, and I'm going to be bouncing off it a little bit through this talk. 
And he says this, perhaps promoting the news about Christ is the stuff of fanaticism rather than a reasoned modern faith. This is our fear, isn't it? He says, the rhetoric of our world, which insists you keep your faith to yourself, is very powerful and sometimes leaves us cringing at the thought of getting overly active in God's mission to convert the world. For some Christians, this salvation cringe is so keenly felt they avoid getting involved in mission in any overt way. It's not that they lack concern for their neighbours. It's just that they do not want to appear too evangelistically zealous. That is too high a price to pay. So how can we get over our salvation cringe? Our natural tendency might be to try to shrink down Jesus' call to be his witnesses. We might think that's the answer, that, that to be less radical. But that's not the answer Jesus gives. In Matthew 28, he seems to call us to be more radical, not less. Because he's radical because he is bigger and better and more extreme than we can ever imagine. And so we don't get over our cringe by shrinking him down. We get over our cringe actually by seeing just how big he is. That's what helps us to obey his call to make disciples. And so that's what we're going to try to do today as we look at this passage. We're focusing on the one from Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 to 20. We're going to focus on three ways in which Jesus and this, his call to gracious witness is bigger than we think, not smaller. So we're going to think about a bigger reality, a bigger task, and a bigger promise. If you have your Bible open, it'd be great to have it there at Matthew chapter 28 as we start having a look at this passage. Uh, if we were to read right through Matthew's Gospel, and even just beginning at the start of Matthew chapter 28, we'd see that what we arrive here at the end is this massive climax. Yeah, chapter 28 begins in darkness, but it ends with light, literally. It, it begins uh, with death, but it ends with life. It begins with Jesus defeated and buried in the grave, but it ends with him triumphant, having come through the humiliation of his betrayal and death. He has been completely vindicated by the end. And so when he's reunited with his disciples in verses 16 to 17, they have to try to get this he their heads around this, this new reality Everything's upside down for them and, and it must have been completely mind-blowing because Jesus has done what no one else has ever done. He's actually beaten death. He hasn't just kind of been revived or resuscitated. He hasn't just kind of returned to life in the same way that he brought Lazarus back to life with a body that would still be subject to decay and death. He has destroyed death. And so he's risen with a new kind of body, a body which is completely transformed so that it can live forever, never to decay or die again. And so his disciples are trying to process all of this, and some of them are worshipping him, you can see there in verses 16 17, and some of them are doubting what their own eyes are telling them. And so as they're trying to get their heads around this, Jesus kind of explains the significance of, of what his resurrection means in verse 18. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice the stress on that word, all. It's a word he repeats four times in this short passage. 
all authority, all nations, all things, all ways. It's as if he wants them to grasp that this new reality is even bigger than they realize. All the authority claims that he's made throughout his ministry, that he has authority to forgive sins, that he has authority to heal diseases, that he has authority to speak for God, that he has authority to replace the Jewish temple as the center of worship. All of those claims to authority, which had looked like they'd been completely undone by Jesus' death on the cross, have now been truly vindicated. Because if he even has authority over death, that means he has authority over every sphere, every domain. He has authority not just over this life, but over eternal life. He has authority not just over human beings, but over spiritual beings. He's actually defeated the evil one himself, is what it means. It's not that Jesus didn't have authority to rule before. Throughout Matthew's Gospel, we see his authority on display again and again, but now his claims have been vindicated. His authority has been confirmed, and it's a total authority. You can see that there. He makes the point, in heaven and on earth, which when you think about it, pretty much covers everywhere. There's no sphere, he's saying, in your life or in anyone else's life where Jesus doesn't rule. And he rules whether people acknowledge him or not. He rules whether you acknowledge him or not. Because the God who made all things has given him authority to rule all things. He's the Lord of all. And this is vitally important for our gracious witness. This is the basis on which we can call all people to follow Christ. It's the basis on which we can seek to make disciples in all nations. Jesus is the Lord of all. And so his authority crosses boundaries. Crosses boundaries of gender and social status and culture and religion and race. He rules all things whether we acknowledge it or not. This is the primary and foundational motivation for our mission, for our witness. It's not just that Jesus loves people, though he does. It's not just that he forgives people, though he will. It's not just that he's coming back to judge, though he is. It's that he rules, he has authority over everything and over every sphere, and so he's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of our trust and obedience. He's the Lord of all. That's the reality that the resurrection proves. And so what it means is this. It means that Jesus is not just a a personal lifestyle choice that we should keep to ourselves. Jesus is not just a private religion, which I follow in the privacy of my own home and never let out in public. He's too big for that. There's a claim on everyone and everything. He's the Lord of all. You see the point? We're called to be witnesses to Jesus because all things belong to him. Paul puts it like this in Colossians. He says, in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, 
things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's why Cheslin Colby is right to thank God for his victory. Everything holds together in Jesus. Everything we have is a gift from him. And everything belongs to him. This is the bigger reality. Uh, John Dixon explains it like this. He says, we promote God's glory to the ends of the earth, not principally because of any human need, but fundamentally because of Christ's unique worthiness as the Lord of heaven and earth. Promoting the gospel to the world is more than a rescue mission, though it is certainly that as well. It is a reality mission. It's our plea to all to acknowledge that they belong to one Lord. And I just want to say that when it comes to gracious witness, this is actually freeing. It's incredibly freeing. If we preach Christ primarily because we're motivated by people's need for him, that puts a lot of pressure on us. If, if someone rejects that message, then it feels like we have failed, right? But if we preach Christ kind of with our eyes fixed on him because he's worthy, because he's wonderful, and because all things belong to him, then we're set free from that guilt and fear and pressure. Instead, we're give, driven by thanks and wonder and awe. We're not responsible for how other people respond. That's their business. Jesus is Lord, whether they acknowledge him or not. Do you see how this might change the way we do gracious witness? It means we don't need to feel threatened. We don't need to be defensive. We don't need to engage in win-at-all-cost arguments or try to outsmart people. Nor do we need to hide Jesus away. Because we speak about Jesus not to please people, but because he is worthy of our praise. Do you see how this takes the pressure off our gracious witness, not by making Jesus smaller, but by making Jesus bigger because he's the Lord of all. And so this leads us to our second point. It helps us to think about the true nature of the task which Jesus calls us to. You can see the task in verse 19 there. He spells it out. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Uh, historically, preachers have often put the stress here on that word go to encourage Christians to leave their homes and their workplaces and even their countries to move to a distant land like my sister who's in the Middle East in order to make disciples. And certainly some people need to go if we're going to reach all nations. But in the Greek, the word go there, it's a participle. I don't even know how to say that right. But it, it kind of more literally means as you go. And so the main stress here is, is not so much on the going as on the making of disciples. A disciple is a learner or a follower. And so to disciple a person to Christ is to bring them to, to, into a relationship of kind of like pupil and teacher accepting what Jesus says is good and right and true, and so following him. Jesus is saying, so make disciples of Jesus, not of you. 
wherever you go, as you go into your workplace, as you go into the schoolyard, as you go into your family gatherings, as you, as you go down to the shops, as you go on holidays, make disciples. Because Jesus is the Lord of all and so he's, he's the Lord of every part of life. Uh, sometimes this might mean leaving your home. Sometimes it might mean going to a new job or a new home or even a new country because Jesus rules every part of your life and so we're to bring even our, those sort of decisions under his rule about where we live and the work we do. Knowing that Jesus longs for people from all nations to follow him. And actually, as we get to this point of Matthew's Gospel, this is a, a huge kind of fulfillment of everything that we've seen unfolding through Scripture. This coming of all nations into God's kingdom has always been part of his plan. This is why the Jewish people were to praise God among the nations. This is what Abraham was called to do. When God called him in Genesis 12, he said, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. This is why in the Psalms we read that the Jewish people are to declare God's praises in the nations. Psalm 96, which I read at the beginning of this service, begins like this. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord of the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation day to day. Where? Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all peoples. And the Jewish people were not to hide God away. God's plan was to bring people from all nations into his kingdom to form a new humanity. And so when Jesus commands his followers to make disciples of all nations, it is that glorious end that he is looking towards. A day when people from all races and all cultures and all backgrounds join together as part of his kingdom, praising God as king. And so the task to make disciples might be bigger than we realize. It's not just making converts that Jesus calls us to do. He doesn't just call us to get people across the line so that they pray the prayer or that they get forgiven. Do you, no, do you see what he's calling us to? Making disciples means bringing people into God's kingdom and helping them to live life under God's rule. It's a much more kind of immersive Experience. That's actually why Jesus talks about baptizing people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word there literally says baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Where to immerse people in baptism, not just into water, but into this reality, into God, who is Father and Son and Spirit. Into this reality where Jesus is King and Lord of all. We're to immerse people into this life where they obey all the things that Jesus has commanded us to obey. And so this task is bigger than we might have thought. We're not calling people to ask Jesus into their life. That's how we often talk about it. Ask Jesus into your heart. The Bible doesn't really tell us to ask Jesus into our heart. 
We're not calling people to ask Jesus into their life. We're calling them to enter into his. Do you see there's a difference there? We're not calling people to choose Jesus as if he's sort of a product on a shelf or, or, a, or a lifestyle choice that they'll fit in around all their other lifestyle choices. You don't just ask Jesus into your life. You enter into his. That's what being a disciple is about. It's about all of life. And so for this reason, our gracious witness isn't just limited to evangelism. It's not just limited to preaching the gospel. It is a whole of life task. It's a life of praying for people to become disciples. It's a life of showing hospitality to people. It's a life of worshipping and praising God together. It's a life of serving one another and caring for those in need. It's a life of teaching people how to follow Jesus. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Gracious witness is calling people with all our lives to follow Jesus with all of theirs. You see how big that is? How all-encompassing? It's radical. Jesus is calling his followers to be radical like he is radical. So how can we live up to that? You know, when our friends on Facebook are insulted by the fact that we might not keep Jesus to ourselves, how can we dare to be open about the reality that Jesus is Lord? We can't if our eyes are fixed on what other people think of us. And Jesus knows that, so he gives us something else to fix our eyes on. Have a look at verse 20. This is how he concludes. He concludes his call with this remarkable promise. He says, and remember, let's see if I can just get that up here. He says, remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word remember there, I've gone a bit crazy on the Greek stuff this morning. It's the Greek word idu, and it literally means actually see. It means look, it means pay attention. So what do we see when we look at Jesus? Well, he says, we see that the Lord of all people and all places is with us all the time. See that? I'm with you always. This is the Lord we see. Actually, we see him throughout Matthew's gospel. This is the Lord who was called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This is the Lord we see who was with the sick to heal them and who was with the hungry to feed them, who was with sinners to forgive them, who was with outcasts to include them, who was with the weary and the burdened to carry their load, who was with the disciples in the stormy sea. And this same Lord is with us all the time through his spirit who lives with us. This is the Lord we see. He, he's not like, Jesus is not like a relay runner who passes on the baton to the next runner and then stops running. He's saying he will not stop. He won't leave us to run alone. He keeps running with us, actually ahead of us. 
Uh, sometimes people try to limit this call to gracious witness by saying that Jesus was just speaking to those particular disciples in that day, as if they were the only ones called to make disciples, as if we can afford to hide Jesus away. And yet when Jesus says, I will be with you, he's clearly not just speaking to those disciples, he's speaking to the generations who will come after them as well, those who will follow Jesus to the end of the age. To the end of the age, which is when he returns in person, when our job is done, and when we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the bigger promise that calls us beyond the cringe to make disciples. He is with you always. I still wonder what I should have said to my friend on Facebook. I think I'd like to ask her, what if there is a God who makes a difference? What if there is a God who gives you life and who knit you together in your mother's womb and who loves you and who has given you everything you have? And what if you never say thanks to him? That's a conversation I'd love to have with her, to invite her into this bigger reality. And it's a conversation that I shouldn't cringe away from. I don't have to feel pressured or defensive in. Because Jesus reminds us that gracious witness is not about winning an argument. Because Jesus is Lord of all, whether my friend acknowledges him or not. So on one hand, I can kind of relax. On the other hand, I can be more radical. Like Jesus was radical. Radical in the sense that we heard from the video before. Radical with unclenched fists and arms unfurled to conquer the world. As I invite her into the reality into the kingdom, into the life, into the love that he holds out to her. That kind of radical.